Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 2, Episode 8. Didn't we solve this problem? How and why our schools remain racially segregated? Today is May 29th, 2020, and protests are raging across the city of Minneapolis in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd. We need to remember that these protests are informed by more than just reactions to police brutality. They are about the historical and ongoing racial disparities, not only in the realms of law enforcement and criminal justice, but also housing, healthcare, and yes, education in the United States. This week, we're going to run two episodes, both dedicated to examining and addressing racial disparities in American public education. This episode in particular is a rerun of a season one episode about school segregation. An episode on school segregation? That phrase seems to evoke a very distant piece of America's past, an era conveyed to many of us, or rather, many of us if we're white, via flickery old news footage of civil rights protesters beset by police dogs and Ruby Bridges proudly walking into the all-white William France Elementary School. Who in America hasn't seen that painting of Ruby Bridges by Norman Rockwell, entitled The Problem We All Live With? But it's not supposed to be a problem we all live with anymore, right? Weren't we all taught in school that Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas in 1954 declared separate but equal schools to be inherently unequal? Didn't that mean that school segregation was now illegal? And didn't the National Guard keep white mobs from attacking black children as they integrated the schools? Cue the victory music and run the credits. Speaking personally, my history education throughout high school covered pretty much the same narrative and ended there, which, when you think about it, is kind of like teaching European history as follows. And then, after a long and terrible war to end all wars, on November 11th, 1918, Germany surrendered, and with the Allied victory over the forces of Kaiser Wilhelm, Europe was safe from tyranny and war. Yeah. Well, a couple of things happened after that that just might be important for understanding the modern world. Similarly, the victory of Brown versus the Board of Education makes for a nice, feel-good story that lasts only so long as you don't walk in and take a look at any actual schools in the United States. Because if you do, you'll see that not only is segregation alive and well here at the beginning of the second decade of the 21st century, but it's actually getting worse. This episode will explore the nature of that situation, what it is, how it came to be, and what might be some ways out of it. Although, spoiler alert, none of them are easy fixes. Easy fixes or not, the state of racial demographics in American schools definitely needs fixing. At least if you care about racial segregation, which you should, since there are over 60 years of studies linking it to poor educational outcomes for African American and Latinx children, and all sorts of different ways in which it hurts the education of white children as well. But let's start with some statistics. According to the UCLA's analysis of Department of Education data from 2012, at that time, the average white student was attending a school that was 73% white. The average African-American student was attending a school that's 49% African-American. And the average Latinx student was attending a school that is 57% Latinx. Things have actually gotten worse since then. Today, half of black students attend schools with an 80% or more minority student body. Despite the fact that white students vastly outnumber African-American students in schools, at no point in U.S. history have more than 50% of African-American students attended schools with a majority of whites in the student body. Today, 
so-called apartheid schools, schools with fewer than 1% white students, have more than doubled in number since 1988, from 2,762 to 6,727 schools nationwide. School segregation remains strong all across the United States, and contrary to what Yankees like me might assume, school segregation is actually at its least strong in the American South. Today, the state with the most segregated schools in the United States is, wait for it, New York. Now, New Yorkers are quick to tell me that this is only true if you factor in the population of Manhattan, to which I'd reply, that's over a million people. I think we need to factor it in. According to the Civil Rights Project at Harvard University, in 2018, the proportion of black students at majority white schools is now at a level lower than in any year since 1968. How and why did this happen? I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, my social studies teachers took great pains to draw a distinction between de jure segregation, that is, segregation as required by law, and de facto segregation, segregation that results from, well, all sorts of other things, whether we're talking unwritten laws and agreements or traditions, or as my mostly white students usually propose, people just like to live with people who look like them. Well, my argument in this episode is that school segregation today is not de facto. It's not based on unwritten laws, at least not entirely, but instead is the product of past and present legal decisions and legislative measures that created and continue to accelerate the racial segregation of our public schools. But let's go back to when that segregation began. I'm going to pick 1896 as our year to start, because that was when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Plessy v. Ferguson that racially segregated public facilities, including schools, were legal, so long as the facilities for blacks and whites were equal. This establishes the separate but equal doctrine that you might have heard of. That doctrine remained the law of the land until 1951, when Oliver Brown files a class action suit against the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, after his daughter, Linda Brown, is denied entrance to Topeka's all-white elementary schools. Brown's suit, Brown's suit claims that the school segregation laws violate the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. The U.S. District Court in Kansas agrees that public school segregation has a detrimental effect upon the colored children, that's a quoted phrase, and promotes a, quote, sense of inferiority, unquote, but it upholds the law. That leads Brown to, along with four other plaintiffs in separate cases, go to the U.S. Supreme Court, which rules in favor of the plaintiffs. In 1954, Brown v. the Board of Education of Topeka, unanimously, in a 9-0 decision, how long has it been since that kind of thing has happened, that segregated schools are inherently unequal. Now, a very important part of this decision was that the court rejected arguments that just increasing funding for the Negro schools would have solved the issue. I'm quoting from the Brown opinion here. We come then to the question presented. Does segregation of children in public schools solely on the basis of race, even though the physical facilities and other tangible factors may be equal, deprive the children of the minority group of equal educational opportunities? Well, the court says, quote, to separate black children from others of similar age and qualifications solely because of their race generates a feeling of inferiority as to their status in the community that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlikely to ever be undone, end quote. In other words, it's not just a matter of money and resources. Even if Negro schools and white schools were equally well-resourced, which at no time were they ever, that still would have resulted in detrimental effects on African-American children, 
said the court. And honestly, on white children as well, I think, and we'll get to that a little bit later. So was this the end of school segregation? Well, no. A law is only as strong as the will of the people to follow it, and there was not a lot of will among whites in the South to follow the Brown decision. Their hesitancy and delay was such that in 1965, 11 years after the Brown decision, President Johnson signs Executive Order 11246, in which he says, schools and workplaces need to take what he called affirmative action, active steps to integrate, rather than just somehow sitting and waiting for it to magically happen. And then three years later, the Supreme Court case Green versus New Kent County says, um, you have to actually set timetables for when you're going to desegregate the schools and then adhere to them. Eventually, and with a lot of growing pains, much of the South complies. But that's just half the country. In fact, population-wise, it's less than half. And if you look at the wordings of the Brown and Green decisions, and the executive order, and the 1964 Civil Rights Act, it all refers to legal structures of segregation where schools are concerned. In other words, places where on the books there were laws that said black children and white children needed to attend different schools. And that was only in the South. In the North, schools were just desegregated at times, but it wasn't the direct product of school-related legislation. It was the product of location and economics, and these in turn were shaped by legislative and judicial decisions. But nothing in the Brown decision or the Civil Rights Act explicitly addressed this kind of segregation. You may remember from our very first episode that America doesn't have a singular system of public education. Rather, we have a highly distributed system of over 13,000 public school districts, which exist in a sort of devil's bargain of local control, local funding. So even though everyone is guaranteed a free education at the point of delivery in America, rich towns and cities tend to have very well-supplied schools due to the funding structure of public education, which is based upon local property tax. Poor towns and cities with a lower tax base tend to have less well-supplied and less well-resourced schools. And in most parts of the United States, you don't have a choice. If you live in a town, you have to attend that town's schools. In order to get to a better school, you have to be able to afford to buy or rent a home in a richer town. And the relationship between property ownership, wealth, and race has always been one that has favored whites in the United States. Even today, majority-minority school districts receive less funding on the balance than majority white districts. Now, this is not to ignore or discount the issue of high-poverty, largely white rural schools, or even some that are urban and suburban. But if you look nationwide, this according to the National Equity Atlas based on the 2014 National Center for Education Statistics data, only about 8% of white students in the United States attend a school categorized as high-poverty. Compare that with 48% of African-American and Latinx students. That sounds pretty separate and unequal to me. Federal data released in 2016 showed that the number of high-poverty schools serving primarily African-American and Latinx students more than doubled between 2001 and 2014. So why is this, and why has it been getting worse? Sure, it's about economics, but those economics are in turn shaped by law. Specifically in this case, redlining laws and restrictive covenants. These kept most African-Americans from buying homes in high land value areas, thus cutting them off to access to high-performing schools. If you're not familiar with redlining, it's the practice of the U.S. federal government systematically denying housing loans to people of color, except for houses in the least desirable areas. I happen to be a homeowner, but I don't know about you, 
I didn't show up with a briefcase full of cash to purchase my home. Rather, if you're like me and like most Americans who own homes, you had to take out a loan. And the Federal Housing Authority decided who received those loans in large part based on race. From 1933 to 1973 officially, and then into the 1990s unofficially, redlining established and enforced a disparity that allowed whites to purchase homes in high-value areas and thus have access to high-quality schools, while consigning African-Americans, Latinxes, and sometimes also Asian and Jewish families to separate and highly unequal schools. Again, above-the-board legislation and policy, not some sort of de facto force of nature or economics, kept African-American and Latinx citizens not only from immediately buying homes in areas where schools could be well-funded, but due to the nature of how wealth is generated in the United States, it kept the property they did own from significantly increasing in value. So even once redlining laws are done away with, most African-American and Latinx families just didn't possess the capital to buy or sometimes even rent property in areas whose value had just kept going up for all those years. And even if they did somehow amass enough capital to buy real estate in high-value cities, towns, and neighborhoods, they ran afoul of the other big legislated de jure barrier to equal access to homeownership and thus quality schooling race-based restrictive covenants. These were legally enforceable contracts imposed in a deed upon the buyer of the property that prohibited the purchase, lease, or occupation of a piece of property by a particular group of people, usually African Americans, but sometimes Asians or Jews, and these were enforced through property owners, real estate boards, and neighborhood associations, but they did have legal weight, and owners who violated the terms of that covenant risked forfeiting any profits they made off the sale of that property. So even if a white family wanted to sell their house to a family of color, the disincentives for doing so were enormous. Now, state and town legislation that created municipally mandated racial zoning was declared unconstitutional way back in 1917 with USC Buchanan versus Worley. But in 1926, USC Corrigan versus Buckley allowed private zoning agreements to remain legal. Those were not declared unconstitutional until 1948. The case is Shelley versus Kramer, if you're curious. And they were also outlawed by the Federal Fair Housing Act of 1968, but the damage had been done. By the time of Shelley versus Kramer, 80% of the property in Chicago and Los Angeles, to take two cities as an example, carried restrictive covenants barring African-American families from purchasing property there. And as mentioned earlier, if you haven't had all those years for your property to continue amassing value, your chances of buying property that has been doing so don't look too good. I do want to take this moment to give a shout out to Michigan Governor George Romney. If that name sounds familiar, he is the father of present-day Utah Senator and former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney for being one of the most vocal public opponents of redlining and restrictive covenants. George Romney, like his son, was an avowed Republican, so let that serve as an example of how social justice isn't just a liberal blue state issue. In fact, it's a tenet of conservative critiques of white Northern liberals that, for all their high-minded talk about racial equality and integration, Northern housing, and thus schooling, was and remains severely segregated. As with Brown versus the Board of Ed, it was usually up to the minority families themselves to keep pushing for change in the system. And one time that happened was in 1971, when Vera and Daria Swan, the parents of a six-year-old child, sued the Charlotte-Mecklenburg School District in North Carolina. Okay, that's not really the North, but we'll get to New York and Boston in a moment because this case winds up having huge implications there. They sued to allow their son to attend Seversville Elementary School, at the time one of Charlotte's few actually integrated schools. The federal district judge ruled in their favor, as did the U.S. Supreme Court after the district appealed, 
and the most famous takeaway from this decision is that it empowered districts to implement busing, even forced busing if necessary, as a means to racially integrate schools. Now, Swan versus Charlotte-Mecklenburg was a unanimous Supreme Court decision, but for white Americans and even some Americans of color, the issue couldn't have been more divisive. Three years after the Swan decision, a 5-4 split on the court over Milken versus Bradley ruled that desegregation efforts, including busing, could not cross district lines. This allowed for white flight into the suburbs, where due to a combination of, as we discussed, redlining, restrictive covenants, and economics, many African Americans and Latino families couldn't follow. That left busing as a remedy for desegregation only within the borders of large cities. And sure enough, cities where federal lawsuits resulted in busing orders included Boston, Springfield, Kansas City, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Prince George's County, Maryland, and Wilmington, Delaware. Boston is probably the most infamous of the cities where desegregation busing was attempted. After being stonewalled for years by the Boston School Committee, African-American Bostonians successfully sued in federal court to desegregate the schools. Judge Arthur Garrity, who ordered busing, lived in Wellesley, Massachusetts, so it wasn't like anyone in his neighborhood was being affected. And the two communities that his ruling targeted for the busing exchange were the neighborhoods of Roxbury and South Boston, which at the time were home, respectively, to some of the poorest African Americans and some of the poorest whites in the city. White South Bostonians, after years of economic hardship, had plenty of anger to turn upon the busloads full of black children coming into their neighborhood schools. A sense of racial superiority is often the life preserver for otherwise disempowered white people. Look back to the Civil War, where almost none of the thousands of soldiers who fought for the Confederacy were actually wealthy enough to own plantations and benefit from slave labor themselves. Part of what they were fighting to preserve was the sense that, no matter how bad things got for them, they were at least somehow better than black people. Now I know many people talk about the Civil War as being mainly about states' rights, just as many white opponents of busing in Boston said what they were protesting against was the government telling them where they could and couldn't send their kids to school. But the anger they expressed was definitely expressed in terms of racism. Crowds of whites jeered racial epithets at the incoming black students in South Boston. They threatened and even broke the windows of buses carrying black children, some as young as elementary schoolers. Most whites in Southie kept their children home rather than have them bus to Roxbury or even have them attend their local schools now that the black students were arriving. Protests and riots, the vast majority of them by white people, consumed the city for years. On one occasion, angry whites smashed windows at City Hall. The most iconic photo of these protests is without a doubt Stanley Foreman's Pulitzer Prize-winning 1976 snapshot of white Bostonian Joseph Rakes, a teenager who attacked black lawyer Ted Landmark with the sharp end of a flagpole bearing the American flag. You can Google the name of the picture, The Soiling of Old Glory, to take a look. Incidentally, although Rakes was convicted of assault with a deadly weapon and sentenced to two years in jail, his sentence was suspended. As far as African-American students were concerned, the most dangerous of the protests was probably the one on December 11, 1974, when accusations that a black student named James White, who had been bused to South Boston High School, had killed white student Michael Faith in a knife fight, led to a neighborhood-wide riot, one of the worst in the city's history. The accusations later turned out to be false. The two had fought, and Faith had been injured, but later recovered. But as rumors flew, hundreds of whites surrounded the school, and police could barely keep them back from storming inside to enact violence upon the black students within. The white mobs overturned police cruisers, stoned police horses, and attacked the buses that had been sent to take the black children home to Roxbury. Even Louise Day Hicks, infamous Boston School Committee member who had staunchly defended school segregation, pleaded with the crowd, 
unsuccessfully, to calm down and disperse. In the end, decoy buses were sent to distract the crowd, while the black students were secretly evacuated out another entrance. So yes, in Boston, the cradle of liberty and liberalism, attempts to integrate the schools were met with violence. And even though the busing order technically remained in force until the late 1980s, by then it was kind of a joke. All of the whites who could leave the public school system did, either by moving to the suburbs or putting their children in private or parochial schools. After all those years and all that violence, one of the most ambitious plans to desegregate schools in the nation actually, ironically, resulted in deeper racial segregation in the Boston area. Even though the vast majority of the violence and harassment was perpetrated by whites against blacks, children, remember, that didn't stop Hollywood from making films like Halls of Anger, where terrified white students have to defend themselves from malevolent black newcomers. For crying out loud, the movie poster shows black teenagers literally ripping the clothes off of a beautiful white girl. She's striking this Fay Ray in distress pose in nothing but her bra, while in the background, a white boy struggles to save her, but is held back by a black mob. It's an almost perfect inversion of what actually happened, but it fits so well with the history of white America's irrational fears of hyperviolent, hypersexualized black men. The same fears that led a white jury to acquit the white men who brutally murdered 14-year-old African-American boy Emmett Till for the crime of whistling at a white woman. But these fear-mongering images, like the kind in Halls of Anger, are the ones that somehow stuck with many white Americans, far more than the footage of white mob attacks against black kids, or Joseph Rake's desecration of the American flag by using it as a weapon of racism. By the way, the movie stars a young Jeff Bridges in one of his earliest roles, I have never been more disappointed in The Dude. Not cool, man. Not cool. I want to give a shout out instead to the excellent documentary footage compiled along with commentary by Blackside's Eyes on the Prize series, specifically the episode Keys to the Kingdom, which you can Google and watch for free, and I highly recommend you do so. I also recommend Michael Patrick McDonald's book All Souls, as it gives a compelling autobiographical narrative from a white Southie resident's point of view. School desegregation attempts in other parts of the North might not have been as violent, but they were no more successful. In New York City, students staged a one-day school boycott on February 3, 1964, where approximately 460,000 students refused to go to school. It remains, by the way, the largest single boycott or walkout in U.S. history. Some of the students' demands included rezoning school districts to achieve racial integration. But the next month, a much, much smaller crowd of only about 15,000 white New Yorkers marched across the Brooklyn Bridge to protest rezoning, and the city backed away from its ambitious rezoning plans. The years between the mid-1970s and today bring one defeat after another for school desegregation attempts, and nearly always via de jure legislation and judicial decisions. In California in 1979, voters passed Constitutional Proposition No. 1, that puts a stop to federally mandated busing. In 1982, the U.S. Supreme Court's case Crawford v. Board of Education of the City of Los Angeles upholds the decision that Proposition 1 is constitutional, and in one state after another, courts strike down laws that permit mandatory busing. Part of how they can do this is from a combination of two U.S. Supreme Court cases, Board of Education of Oklahoma City v. Dowell in 1991, and Freeman v. Pitts in 1992 that essentially give federal and lower courts the power to make the call as to whether desegregation measures like busing should continue. And one after the other, the answer winds up being no. Perhaps the final nail in the coffin of school desegregation, or the final piece of brick laid for the foundation of maintaining school segregation, 
however you want to look at it, arose from Charlotte-Mecklenburg, the same district, ironically, from which the Swan decision about busing was derived. In 1999, white parent Bill Capaccioni sued the district because his daughter did not get the lottery pick for her top choice of school. He challenged the district policy that the school must maintain a 60% white and 40% black ratio, reflecting the makeup of the district's population as a whole. Since there were separate lotteries for black and white students, Capaccioni sued on the grounds of, wait for it, the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, the same one that played such a key role in Brown v. Board of Education. I know that earlier in this episode I referred to Charlotte as somehow being a part of the North, but now let's be honest and consider it part of the South, because, well, it's useful for my argument right now. In 1964, 2% of black children across the South attended desegregated schools, but over the next eight years, the majority of black children attended an integrated school. That was the effect of the Brown decision and also the Civil Rights Act, worded as they were to specifically target the kinds of school segregation that arose in the South. Charlotte, in some ways, had become the poster city for desegregation efforts. In the 1990s, they had one of the most racially integrated schools districts in the United States. But the Capaccioni decision establishes that race cannot be used as a factor in school admissions for any reason. And this case sets precedent for similar cases all across the United States of white parents successfully suing to end just about any government attempt to establish or maintain racially integrated schools. Later that same year, the Boston School Committee voted 5-2 to two to end race as a basis for any sort of school assignment. This two years after the parents of a white student rejected from the competitive Boston Latin exam school sued successfully for her admission, arguing that setting aside half the places for racial minorities violated her rights. In 2012, Mayor Thomas Menino and Boston University Dean Hardin Coleman chair a task force that leads to the end of the zone system entirely, removing the last remaining artifact of the 1972 Morgan v. Hennigan ruling against school segregation. But, if anything, they were late to the party. In 2007, U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts, writing for the majority in Parents Involved in Community Schools v. Seattle School District No. 1 and Meredith v. Jefferson County Board of Education, states that, quote, any consideration of race, no matter how benign or inclusive, is presumptively unconstitutional. So I hope this demonstrates that what we have in place today in our schools is not some sort of de facto, accidental, or, heaven help us, voluntary state of segregation. At least, not voluntary on the part of minority students. It's definitely the product of voluntary, sustained efforts on behalf of white families. Here's a clip from a 2013 town meeting in St. Louis, Missouri, of a white parent describing why she opposes measures that would bring greater integration into her school. I deserve to not have to worry about my children getting stabbed or taking a drug or getting robbed because that's the issue. And there it is again, the halls of rage narrative, the threat that bringing black students into contact with white students will somehow bring crime, drugs, and a lowering of academic standards. What the data shows is almost the opposite. There are so many studies that attest to the power of integrated schools to promote higher achievement among Black and Latinx students. In particular, I'll mention Berkeley professor Rucker Johnson, who found that Black children exposed to more years of desegregation did better in their academics, and their children did better too. African Americans who attended desegregated elementary schools were 22% more likely to graduate and less likely to be incarcerated as adults. Furthermore, Johnson's study found that narrowing the achievement gap had no ill effect on the achievement of white students. 
In fact, some studies even speak to potential benefit for white students in that diverse environments give white students advantageous exposure to cultures that are different from their own and greater skills in cooperating on diverse teams in the career world. So if school integration is in everyone's best interests, but our schools are moving farther and farther in the opposite direction, what is there to do? One option is voluntary diversification initiatives, like Boston's METCO program, which since the 1960s has forged agreements between Boston and nearby suburban school districts to allow lottery-based voluntary busing and attendance for minority students to attend the more well-resourced, largely white districts nearby. Specifically, the program is designed to take minority students from schools declared to be in racial imbalance, that is, when more than 50% of students are non-white, and Boston schools are about 85% non-white, and bring them to schools declared to be in racial isolation, when fewer than 30% of the students are not white. Participating in programs like METCO can be highly advantageous for African-American and Latinx students in that they often get access to more well-resourced schools with more highly qualified teachers, but it can also carry costs, as the students frequently must endure 90-minute bus rides to and from their new school, and often face prejudice and discrimination, both overt and subtle, in their largely white school environments. In the wake of the general rollback of school desegregation efforts, Voluntary programs like METCO, as problematic as they are, offer at least some opportunities for some students to break out of the separate but unequal system of American public education. But if you're looking for a larger policy-based solution, you've got to do something to address the key problem that except for programs like METCO, most students don't have the ability to attend any other school than the one in the district where they live, with school attendance bound to housing and housing bound to the marriage of economics and race, and school funding and thus quality dependent on the property taxes on that housing, you're always going to have a recipe for racial segregation and structural inequities in what school opportunities are available. One recent attempt to cut through this Gordian knot is the model of school choice. The pitch is that more charter schools, more magnet schools, more vouchers, in short, more options for families to send their children to someplace other than their neighborhood school, will somehow create an atmosphere of competition that will push all schools to become better so that they can remain competitive for the money that comes with per-pupil expenditure that would follow the student to the school of their choice. Until and unless we reach that dream goal of all schools being excellent, however, there are still going to be a limited number of seats in the very best schools. Proponents of this free market model say that it would give students of color the same chances in the lottery to get into those best schools as white children. Opponents fear that white children will still have an advantage, particularly wealthy white children, whose parents have the social and financial capital to game the system in the most advantageous way possible. Some opponents also fear that as money follows students to the best schools, it leaves the struggling schools with even fewer resources, which makes for an even worse education for the students still stuck there. Now, the charter school debate is complicated, and I'm sure I'll devote more than one podcast episode to it, because not every free market plan for reforming education is the same, and we need to spend more time than this already lengthy episode can afford. But for now, I'll present this as one model, the free market model. Almost the reverse of this would be the Nordic model. In places like Finland and other Nordic countries, and to some extent throughout all of Europe, a high-quality education is viewed as every child's right, and it's the government's responsibility to supply the means to that education. In other words, to make sure that all schools are funded enough to not make it matter where you live. Every place you go would have an excellent school. In a society where all schools are excellent, then all children are served equally, regardless of race or socioeconomics. 
The challenge to this system is also obvious. It requires massive nationwide government investment in and federal-level accountability for our schools. It would require centralizing what in the United States is currently a highly disparate system of funding and governance. In short, it would require a pretty massive shift in the average American's views on economics and government control. Something in between might look like something like the Brooklyn School of Inquiry or PS191 in New York City, who are experimenting with reserving a certain number of spots in the most well-resourced schools for low-income or otherwise disadvantaged students. By keeping it about economics and not race, even if it is sort of economics as code for race, they hope to create something like a fully institutionalized version of METCO, sort of a METCO for all, if you will. The pitch is that white kids and parents get to stay in their privileged school communities, but students of color get a guaranteed chance to join them. Everybody wins. The increase in school population would be offset, they say, by per-pupil expenditure money traveling with the student, which could lead to hiring more teachers and maintaining small student-teacher ratios. The challenges of this model include the possibility that it could just lead to segregation within schools. There's a lot of research that attests to how white students, and to a lesser extent, East and South Asian students, predominate within honors, AP, and advanced classes, while African-American and Latinx students tend to end up in the standard or remedial classes. And the research shows that racial disparities in academic placement within a school happen even among students who have similar grades and test scores. Finally, a really interesting idea that I read in a recent issue of The Atlantic made the pitch that college admissions could take the demographics of schools into account, giving priority to applicants who attended schools with a certain threshold of low-income students, say above 40%. Admissions officers would look favorably on students who attended an economically integrated school. Again, we're talking code for race here, even though that's not always the case. Much as they might privilege students who have had unusual travel experiences or outstanding extracurriculars. The idea is that this would exert pressure on schools to integrate and incentivize white parents not to flee for whiter districts. If you want to get into Harvard, Johnny, you have to make sure you attend a diverse high school. Now, given the prohibitive price of college, this system might only incentivize middle and upper class whites to attend diverse schools. White students not planning to attend college wouldn't really be affected by this particular carrot. This has been our longest episode to date, and I've barely scratched the surface of most of the issues I've raised here. But if you leave with anything, leave remembering that Brown versus the Board of Education did not solve the problem of racial segregation in American schools. That before and after, coordinated activism on the part of some whites led to laws and court decisions that kept and continue to keep schools as segregated as possible. Not every white person, of course, supports these sorts of measures, but every white person potentially benefits from them, and I'm no exception. Just being born white made me statistically far more eligible to have access to high-quality schooling than if I were born black or Latinx, yet also made me and my children less likely to attend a school that will really give us the experience we need in order to be successful in a country that's growing increasingly diverse and a world growing increasingly interconnected. Ending school segregation won't be easy, but ending it is in the best interests of whites as well as people of color. And only working together will we ever be able to end it. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. 
The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new.